So I asked before we started the service what your favorite Christmas carol or song is, and I could follow up, and if we had the time, we could ask the question, why? Why is that your favorite? Is it the melody? Is it the verses? What is it that resonates with you about that song that you chose? And for me, like Emma back here, my favorite song is O Holy Night. And there's a passion, there's a power, there is something in that song that just kind of raises my spirit. It is a difficult uh, song to sing, and it is one of those that when somebody does it well, you just kind of go, oh man, yes. Everybody has different reasons why they enjoy the music that they do, what is it is uh, in the lyrics that of songs and artists that touch upon us. Some of the things, it might be nostalgia, it, it might be a significant message that it communicates and so forth, or we might just like the guitar riffs in the middle of it, I don't know. But all of us have a flavor for something, and each of the gospel writers have their own flavor on the advent of the coming of Christ. So we have been in this series called Advent Invitations, and basically each Sunday we're stepping into each of the gospel accounts, and we're seeing the way they write this, the way they communicate the same set of um, historical incidents, but with a different emphasis. And so when we think about uh, today and the Advent text that we're going to look at in the Gospel of Luke, it probably is the most familiar to you, because this is the text that has been used for years and years and years, and I think the most prominent one that we can think of is when Linus steps out on stage and he recites from the book of Luke, and Luke is that uh, portrayal of what we know, know and love best, that uh, wonderful moment of cherishing the birth of Christ. Do you realize the Charlie Brown Christmas special has been around since 1965? It's a long time. And so we've seen that repeatedly, and so we're familiar with the way this particular gospel writer writes the events, at least in chapter 2. Sometimes we are unfamiliar with chapter 1, and that's what I want to concentrate on today, the two songs in chapter 1, because we'll come back on Christmas Eve and we'll talk about angels that fill the night sky, we'll talk about shepherds abiding in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night, and Mary pondering all of these things in her heart. Well, each gospel is a unique dwelling structure that houses the story of the coming of Christ. And there is more going on in each of these gospels than the four gospels when they're kind of mushed together. You remember two weeks ago when Corey started this series, he talked about how we take pieces and bits and pieces from all four gospels and we kind of scrunch them together. So you look up at the nativity set and you're going to see the Magi there. Well, the Magi did not come to see Jesus for maybe up to a year later, even though we scrunch it into the Christmas story. So what we want to do is feel the emphasis of each gospel. So Matthew ties all of this together as it, he begins 
with a genealogy that uh, Corey talked about. Last week, Mark begins this with a spotlight on John the Baptist as the messenger that prepares the way for the coming of Christ. Today, Luke, in chapter 1, he begins with a spotlight on Mary and Zechariah. And that's what we're going to do, is look at Mary and Zechariah's song. And the tone and tenor and plot of Luke's account is <clears throat> excuse me, vastly different than Matthew and Mark. Luke has a backstory to the birth of Christ, and that's why he includes these two songs. You might say he gives us the gospel before the gospel. Now, I want you to notice as you step into Luke's gospel here this morning that he has a unique take on Advent. When you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Luke, there are several time-date stamps that are given to us. So when the story begins, chapter 1, it talks about King Herod. Chapter 2, it talks about an emperor by the name of Augustus. And chapter 3, it talks about an emperor by the name of Tiberius. And the question is, why are these time stamps there? Is it simply to give us a chronology of events, or is it something more? Each of this represents some type of powerful political figure in the ancient world as they carry out the ongoing power structure of the Roman Empire. That's important to keep in mind. So this story in Luke is set against the backdrop of the Roman Empire. So I'm going to pick one of these individuals, Augustus. Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he became the sole ruler of the Roman world by a bloody civil war, which he won. He turned the Roman Republic into a great empire, but as he did so, he started to assume certain titles that we are familiar with in the person of Jesus. He called himself the Son of God. Interesting. He called himself the Savior of the people. He called himself King, and he called himself Lord. Those are all titles that we give to Jesus, right? Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it seems as though Luke, as he writes this account, is writing in such a way that is quite dangerous because he is setting up the birth narrative to suggest that Jesus is the true Lord, the one sent by God to be the Savior of the world, and if Jesus is, Augustus isn't. Does that make sense? So there's a, a contrast that begins in this particular book. Now, when we think about how Luke opens up the book, he writes a parallel so when you begin reading the book of Luke, he connects the story back to the Jewish scriptures, and he focuses on Mary and Zechariah, who both receive angelic appearances from an angel by the name of Gabriel, and the news that is given to them then inspires them to sing this song. So these two individuals... Mary and Zechariah are observant Jews. They are faithful. And Zechariah, in fact, is a priest. 
He is an individual that is serving in the temple area when the angel appears to him. But what is interesting is the backstory that his wife, Elizabeth, is barren. She can't get pregnant. And God appears through the angel to Zechariah and says, Elizabeth is going to become pregnant in her old age, and she's going to have a son, and you are going to name him John, because he is going to be the messenger that's going to prepare for the coming of the Lord. You know what's going on in every Jewish mind? This is repeating the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, has a wife by the name of Sarah who is barren. She can't get pregnant. And they both become quite old. And late in years, Sarah becomes pregnant and she gives birth to Isaac. And that begins the ongoing story of the Jewish scriptures that the father is Abraham. But the ongoing God is not just the God of Abraham, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the four people that appear in the book of Genesis that is the foundation stone of the nation of Israel. So this is important to keep in mind. Mary, on the other hand, is a young teenager. She is an individual that is betrothed to an older man by the name of Joseph, but she is quite young. And there's this contrast between these two, an old man and a young girl. A priest in the temple, and here is a peasant from a small town. Well, Zechariah protests. He resists this message, much like Sarah did in the Old Testament. She kind of, I'm too old to have a baby. In fact, after she has a baby, she names him Isaac, which means laughter. This is absolutely comedic that I, as an old woman, could have a, a child. So Zechariah asks for a sign that this is true, and because of this, his speech is taken away from him. So if you read Luke chapter 1, what you're going to find is he can't speak for nine months. He's completely silent until his wife Elizabeth gives birth. And then his tongue is loosed, and he sings this praise song to God for this miraculous child that has been born to them. On the other hand, Mary believes right away. So we said last week when we talked about after Mary has a visit from the angel, she goes and she visits her cousin Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth sees Mary, Mary coming, she says, blessed are you among all women. And John the Baptist starts kicking in her womb as a sign that even he is recognizing that this is the one that is to come. Mary breaks into song right away. And she begins to sing about the future in the past tense because with the eyes of faith, she really believes God's victory for her people is going to come about. So you have... 
Luke connecting this back to the Jewish expectation that the Messiah is going to come. So in chapter 1, you have two parallel pre-birth stories. You have the details about John the Baptist with the focus on Zechariah's disbelief and the request for a sign. And then you have the details of the foretelling of the birth of Jesus with a focus on Mary's willingness to believe. Then there are these two parallel birth songs. After Mary visits Elizabeth, she responds with the Magnificat. And then Zechariah, after uh, his son is born, his tongue is loosed, he names the baby John, and then he responds with what is called the Benedictus. These are t uh, technical terms to speak of the two songs. So let's take a look at each of them just for a moment. So if you have a Bible, you can turn open to Luke chapter 1 just for a moment. And um, in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, we first encounter the song of Mary. Now in this particular song, it begins, My soul lifts up the Lord, my spirit celebrates God, my liberator. Mary is deeply moved by these, this amazing encounter, first with the messenger and then with her cousin Elizabeth. And Mary responds, uh, it, it can't be contained in normal prose. It is uh, poetry and it overflows with imagery. And the poetry isn't simply religious, it has this powerful social and political overture to it. And that's something that Luke will pick up later in his gospel. He'll pick up on these things. And what it speaks of is a great reversal of what we might call a social and economic and even political revolution. And to the people in Mary's day, uh, there would be little question as to what she is talking about. So the kind of the sweet, sugary, uh, nice feeling aspects of Christmas doesn't come until chapter 2. None of these are sweet, sugary, or uh, childish tones that we often sing in many of the Christmas hymns. Rather, what it is talking about is the humbling of those who are in power. So listen again. It says, God's arm has accomplished mighty deeds Verse 51, the proud in mind and heart, God has sent away in disarray. The rulers from their high positions of power, God has brought low. And those who were humble and lowly, God has elevated with dignity. These are dangerous words that she's singing. She's suggesting that through the coming of this child, the world is going to be turned upside down. Those who are in power are going to be brought low, and those who are low, like she is, are going to be elevated. So the first song that is being sung by Mary is what God is up to in Jesus. God chooses the powerless to bring down the powerful. And Mary is saying, God saw my powerlessness that I was a nobody, and God lifted me up. You know, God revolutionizes the way we see life, the way we think, the way we act. Before God's 
uh, incarnation into our experience, we had no other way of looking at life except what most people use to evaluate life. We human beings are impressed with money, power, status, and education. We're impressed with beauty and bucks and brains. But there is a different viewpoint. There is a God that sees those that no one else sees. There is a God that lifts up those who have been walked on and marginalized and trampled down with prejudice and racism and all kinds of other things. And in Mary, we hear the story of God choosing a poor teenager to be the mother of the Lord of Lords. He has brought down the power from their thrones, this song is saying. This would be an extremely dangerous thing. And you know what? Later in Luke's story and in Matthew's story as well, we see that those that are in power get nervous. Is this going to lead to a revolution from the Jewish people who are sitting on edge, who have been oppressed ever since the days of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and now Rome, for over 400 years they've been oppressed. And they are looking for one to come, one that will lead them into deliverance. So now we uh, jump down to verse 67. There is another individual, Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, begins to sing a song, but this song is born out of waiting. Can you imagine if you couldn't speak for nine months, how frustrating that would be? All you could do is some sign language and, and suggest you need this or that. But he was given a grand opportunity. And the grand opportunity is this. He was a part of a priestly line that it was their turn to serve in the temple. So he was from the division of the priest called the division of Abijah. And these different divisions were often chosen by lot, by luck, if you will, on who is going to be serving in the temple, who's going to be offering uh, the incense and other things that are done in the temple. Well, Zechariah is an old man by now, and I'm sure he thought his chance of serving in the temple is long gone. But the lot falls upon the division of Abijah, and he is chosen to serve in the temple. And so as he does so, we find that as he is serving, silent, unable to communicate, it is now time for the dark days of, of his own frustration to be over. And in the days of King Herod, a different ruler, we see that he has this opportunity, and I'm sure he's rehearsing everything. He's doing everything right. He's making sure his vestments are right. He's making sure that he does everything proper as he is in the temple. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, he has this opportunity now to vocalize what he has been feeling for nine months. And then 
Elizabeth's turn to deliver a child comes. Verse 57 of chapter 1 says this, When the time was right, Elizabeth gave birth to a son, and news about the Lord's special kindness to her had spread through her extended family and the community. Everyone shared her joy, for after all these years of infertility, she had a son. And as was customary, eight days after the baby's birth, the time came for his circumcision and naming, and everyone assumed he would be named Zacharias like his father. But Elizabeth says, no, we will name him John. And the relatives then say, that name is not found in the family. They turn to Zechariah and ask him what the baby's name should be. He motions for a tablet. He writes down his name is John. And everyone is shocked because it's a breach of family custom. And he names him John. And then this is what I love. Verse 65 says this, a sense of reverence spread throughout the whole community. Why? Because it says in verse 64, at that moment, at that moment, at God's time, Zacharias was able to talk again, and he shouted out praise to God. So what is Zechariah's song all about? Well, this word benedictus comes from the idea of may the Lord be blessed. So it's a short way of identifying the song. May the Lord be blessed. And he picks up on a lot of the same themes of Mary in her song. So Mary's song is about what God is going to do in the world to come. And Zechariah's song is about God redeeming his people, saving them from their enemies, giving them freedom to worship God without fear of foreign oppression. So this is what Zechariah says. May the Lord God of Israel be blessed. For God's intervention has begun, and he has moved to rescue us, the people of God. Verse 69, and the Lord has raised up a powerful sign of liberation for us from among the descendants of God's servant, King David. And as was prophesied through the mouths of his holy prophets in ancient times, God will liberate us from our enemies and from the hand of our oppressors. So there you go. There's the message. So... <clears throat> You have these two songs. In fact, if you look closely at Zechariah's song, and if you take a study Bible, you'll see that there are a couple of dozen references by the way he sings this song to Old Testament scriptures. We don't have time to get into that today. But, so the famous poets and songwriters, they have a message that sometimes captures the attention of the community. So let's think about a poet, one who prognosticates about society. Think of one in our own day and age, actually he's quite old now, but has been around a long time. Think about Bob Dylan. Dylan. He's not that great of a singer, but man, he got a, a Pulitzer Prize for his poetry and the lyrics that he writes, the times they are changing. All of this has kind of some political undertones in his songs. And it captures the heart of a generation in the 60s and in the 70s and so forth. There's kind of a thunder in the voice of Mary and Zechariah and Bob Dylan and others that are like that, that speak to the needs of liberation lifting up the people who have been trampled down. So then Luke goes on, 
And if you jump to chapter 4, very quickly, you find Jesus after he has been baptized by John, after he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, they goes to a synagogue. And there on the, in, at the synagogue on the Sabbath, he stands up and he reads a portion of the book of Isaiah. And here's what he chose to read. If you look at chapter 4, it begins down in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord, the Eternal One, is on me. Why? Because the Eternal de uh, designated me to be His representative to the poor, to preach good news to them. He sent me to tell those who are held captive that they can now be set free and to tell the blind that they can now see and he sent me to liberate those held down by oppression. In short, the Spirit is upon me to proclaim that now is the time. This is the jubilee season of the Eternal One's grace. He says, the kingdom of God has come upon us. And it's good news for the poor. It's good news for those who have been trampled down. It's good news for those who have been marginalized. You know, the closer we get to Christmas, the more tempted we are to retreat, I think, to the cozy, imagined world of our childhood. And it's found in such sentimental songs of I'm, as I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know. But our need for sentiment also has to be balanced with our need for salvation in our world. There are things that are wrong that need to be set right. And Advent is full of realism. Nostalgia and sentiment are wonderful. I enjoy it every year. But Advent is about the future as well. How can we be a part of a better world that Christ came to bring? You see, the infant Jesus will become an adult king and the Lord of Lords, and your dreams and my dreams of a better world are still alive because Christ is alive. He is risen from the dead. So you take the birth uh, narrative and join it with the Easter narrative, and it gives to us hope that the darkness will be overcome because God is always on the move. So what I want to do is I want to show you a video today. I don't know if you have ever seen or heard the song, The Rebel Jesus by Jackson Brown. I want you to pay close attention to the lyrics of it as we watch this. And then I'm just going to comment on it for about 30 seconds and then we're going to close. But take a look. <laughs> 